I have been in pain, Jazz, since the day I was born in squalor in a crack motel, but I've never suffered a day in my life. I thrive, Jazz, and I get to talk to amazing, beautiful human beings like you every day and share my message of hope. And that is a gift to me and you. It's our gift. We share it. Yeah. You're a gift to me as much as I am to you. And that's how, that's how every audience me I ever see. They're a gift to me more than I am to them. I'm Jazz Rawlinson, and this is Reasons to Live, your go-to podcast for inspiring stories of hope, triumph, and inspiration from everyday people. Real voices, important issues, no holding back. Ready to join? Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Reasons to Live podcast. I'm Jazz Rawlinson, writing coach, host of this podcast, and author of the series Reasons to Live One More Day Every Day. You may have noticed it's been quite some time since I've uploaded any interviews and there's a couple of reasons for that, one of which is that I've been hard at work on the second volume of my book series. So it's been an incredibly um, busy 12 months and I'm just about ready to release a second copy, which is really, really exciting. This second volume has, again, 10 stories of hope and triumph from people who've, you know, gone through mental illness, people who are suicide survivors, people who've just gone through really, really tough stuff in their life, but they found a way to come out the other side. So it's really exciting. Um, that second volume is going to be available officially for release on October 10th, World Mental Health Day. You'll be able to grab the book on my website, jazzrawlinson.com. But today I'm here with a really exciting announcement because I am releasing my exclusive interview with Kevin Hines. Now, if you are passionate about mental health or suicide prevention, you've probably heard that name before. Kevin has appeared on pretty much every media outlet out there. Um, but if you haven't heard of him, Kevin Hines is an incredibly um, fascinating and courageous man who is a survivor um, of, of a suicide attempt from the Golden Gate Bridge. So when he was 19, um, back in the year 2000, he jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge and survived um, and Part of his miraculous story is that he's actually kept afloat by a sea lion until coast guards could come and, and rescue him. And since that date, he has been spreading his message uh, of hope and of you know resilience and creating a new life after darkness pretty much everywhere across the world. Uh, Kevin and I connected last year when he was in Australia to host his documentary suicide the ripple effect and since that date we we chatted about um you know doing an interview in the future and we kept in touch and so earlier this year i approached him and asked if he would be interested in being interviewed for the second volume of reasons to live one more day every day and he said yes which was really really exciting and so we set up a time to do an interview a couple of months ago um, but i've got to tell you pretty much everything that could go wrong started to go wrong right before the interview. In the lead up, I started losing my voice. So when you listen to this interview, that's if I sound a little bit raspy or nasally, that's why. Um, Kevin had also injured his shoulder and was in so much pain. Um, I had to change the venue for the interview at the last minute, which meant I actually ended up doing this interview from a primary school classroom because it was the only space I could find late notice um, due to not being able to use the space I originally had. But, you know, 
true true to my message, we forged on, you know, despite adversity. <laughs> and Kevin and I did this interview and we had a really, really great discussion. So as you listen to this interview, you'll hear um, some really, really fascinating discussions on everything from how to positively manage your mental health, particularly if you have bipolar, through to how caregivers can care for themselves when they're looking after someone with a mental illness. Because it's one thing to you know be aware of how to look after yourself when you have a mental illness, but for people who, who care on a daily basis for a loved one with a mental illness, um, you know, it's... It's so important for them to also know the strategies for um, taking care of themselves. And so we talk about Kevin's um, amazing wife, Margaret, and the support she's given him and also how she gives back to herself so that she can be strong for him. Uh, we talk about Kevin's time in psychiatric care earlier this year. And I think it's a really important discussion to have, particularly as he is um, you know, such a such an influential mental health advocate, it's really great to hear that, you know, even those who are in, I guess some people would put Kevin on a pedestal and think that he's on top of his mental health. But, you know, he talks about how he got to this place where he went off his medication and he skyrocketed into such severe mania that um, there were times he would wake up in the morning and couldn't even recognize his wife. And so he had to make a decision to go back into care for quite some time at, at the end of last year and the start of this year. And we also talk about something that is quite controversial. You'll have to listen to hear the rest of it. But yeah, I, have, I hope you guys really enjoy this episode and you get a lot out of it. You know, of course, we will be discussing issues of suicide and suicide attempts in this episode. So if anything is triggering or distressing for you, please do take a break, practice self-care, Reach out to a friend if you need to. Reach out to Lifeline if you need to, 13, 11, 14. Um, but yes, I hope you guys get something great out of this. And as I mentioned, if you want to read Kevin's interview in the second volume of Reasons to Live, just jump on jazzrawlinson.com. You'll be able to get both my books from there. And I also really encourage you to check out um, Kevin and Margaret Hines' amazing work in suicide prevention. I've put their um, details in the show notes. Okay, so here it is. Enjoy. You know, it, there's no doubt that I have fallen off my routine on and off in this, in, in living with bipolar disorder because yeah. it, it's a roller coaster. You go up and you come down. You fly high into mania and you crash into depression. There's no denying that. There's no denying that I was in a psychiatric unit just about 14, 15 weeks ago. But I, I managed my bipolar by working tirelessly to, to manage it on a day-to-day -day basis. So uh, every day uh, that I'm physically capable, which I haven't been for a bit, I exercise 23 minutes a day, twice a day, uh, because it leads, leads to 12 hours better mood. I've been able to do that because of my two injuries for the last, you know, I guess 14, 15 weeks now. I was in the psych ward 15 weeks ago. Mm. Also 15 weeks ago, I injured my right shoulder pretty badly weightlifting. Uh, and that injury has now gone from my neck down to my elbow. So I usually have to wear a sling most of the day when I'm out. My point in saying all this is that um, I do my best to stay on that routine. It doesn't always work, you know, given life situations. But when I'm on the road, here's what I do. I wake up uh, anywhere between 4.30 and 6.30 in the morning, everywhere I am, no matter where I am. And I eat my oatmeal. I have my either, you know piece of fruit. Uh, I don't eat any inflammatory foods in the morning. Uh, I, 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 I then uh, get to get ready for my presentation. 
I, I have already worked out once in the morning. Uh, I will work out again before 5 p.m. no matter where I am, giving me those two 23-minute uh, two periods uh, that the University of, uh, of Georgia has uh, studied and shown that 23 minutes of rigorous exercise leads to 12 hours of better mood. You do that twice a day, 24 hours of better mood. So um, having not been able to do that for a while, it really uh, affects my brain health. At the moment. Oh, that totally makes sense to me because I'm the same. I have to have a routine. Um, otherwise, I start to see my mental health suffer. So I'm always curious about people who are traveling all like all the time and don't really have that routine. So that's why, you know, I find it so interesting following your journey and seeing what you do on a daily basis. When I am traveling, when I'm not injured, I really do follow a strict routine. I, I, I wake up at the same time. I eat at the same time. I exercise at the same time. Uh, I try to have my speeches be correlated between those times. Messing mm. up that, that routine of uh, regular eating habits, regular sleeping habits, and regular uh, uh, exercise habits. And then all the while, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm reading about bipolar mm. disorder every time I can. I, every, I have a Google alert on bipolar disorder type one. Um, mm. I have a Google alert on hallucinations and both auditory and visual. So I, I get to know what the latest and greatest is on a daily basis uh, because I do the work to understand what can I now bring into my routine that's going to better my brain health today. Uh, and I want to know what the latest is on, on this disease because, you know, whether I want to um, claim bipolar disorder or not, I certainly have the symptoms. So, you know, when we think about this, bipolar disorder was, was a term just like every other disease of the brain, just like every disease made up by man. Manic depression is what we used to call it. That's what my biological parents were diagnosed with. So genetically predisposed to it twice, fair enough. We'll call it bipolar disorder. I can go either way. I just, I want people to know that I deal with brain pain and brain pain often hinders my ability to uh, to keep moving forward in life uh, day by day. And it also hinders the ability of my family and friends uh, in, the, in the sense that when I'm having an episode, it really affects the people that love me. Um, but I don't let it get me down uh, to the place of, of, um, of, of being broken. You know, my book's Cracked Not Broken. I will never be broken. I will just keep forging onward while living with this pain. Um, and I think that's one of the most, like, I think you're probably one of the most, I would say, well-known or influential people that live with bipolar. And from following your journey, one thing you always say is that you, you never use the term suffer. You never say I suffer from bipolar disorder, which I, I really love. But I was hoping you could just quickly explain a little bit of why you don't see it as something to, as like a curse or something to suffer from. Right. You know, when you think about all the people in the world that have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, there's a common theme amongst these people. Mm. Um, and I'm not claiming that I am this, but, but they are, uh, they have a level of creativity that is different from most without that diagnosis. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, Robin Williams, uh, you know, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and the list goes on and on. Uh, most recently, Bibi Rexa. And, and, and so I, I see it as a blessing more than a curse because it is giving, I believe it has given me my ability to be creative in film and, and media, um, which, which, which is a growing media for me. And which is something that, that, you know, when, when you, when you put out, uh, when you work with people like Buzzfeed and you put out a video 
that amasses over the course of its time in four years nearly 400 million views wow. um, which is which is more, more views than most videos on the internet um and, and that 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 was something where i wrote the script for that that video and they asked me questions based upon that script wow. and their the filming skills created that five-minute video that that was that touched the heart of so many um and and i'm lucky enough to be that creative in that sense to work with other creative filmmakers and and, and, and really media content creators um and we're working uh, my wife and i margaret uh, who i think you've met in, in in australia that's right she wasn't at the premiere of the your film fair last time yeah now it's blurry you can never keep up with me so. <laughs> um well nonetheless we'll, we'll get you to meet her soon but but um we we have created the Kevin and Margaret Hines Foundation, and 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 under that is 17th and Montgomery Productions. And 17th and Montgomery Productions is a small but growing media outlet, uh, which we hope to grow to a massive level because we create media for people going through brain pain, mm. physical pain, mental pain, all of that. And these. I love that you break it down to that as well and make it so simple by just saying brain pain because it takes a lot of the stigma out of oh, I have a mental illness or I have depression or, you know, I'm so like, I'm a suicide survivor. I, yeah. I like just breaking it down because we all have brain pain. You know? We can all relate. And that's, that's the thing. I can go into a fourth grade class and mm -hmm. teach them about brain pain. And then if it gets worse, who do you talk to? Where do you go? What do you do? Without saying the word suicide once and scaring them. And, and here's the thing I learned from my, my, my friend and colleague, Eric Kuchin, who I think you have on the show. And I'll introduce you guys later. He's a phenomenal mental health advocate here in America. Um, and he, he, he loved that I talk about brain pain because it normalized the, the conversation. When we say, uh, when, we, when we name a foundation or organization, mental illness help or uh, the Alliance of Mental Health, or, you know, we are then excluding the rest of the world who needs to learn about the subject. Yeah. Uh, and because we say mental and health or mental and illness, there's a great many people who will not go to that gallery. There's a great many people that will not go to that speech. There's a great many people who feel it doesn't pertain to them, which is why brain pain is so universal. We've all got brains, we've all been in pain. And so, yeah. you know, if we can work toward helping people uh, recognize that they're struggling and maybe why they're struggling, and, and maybe, maybe we get them a diagnosis so they can name it something so they can understand how to defeat it. And that is the real, that is the real answer to, my, to your question is that I, one day at a time, defeat the pain. I don't always do a good job. I'm not, I'm not doing a good job today, Jack. You know? <laughs> but but I'm gonna get better over time. I'm gonna I'm gonna work harder to be kinder to the people in my life that I love. And I'm gonna be a better human uh one I'm gonna be here tomorrow and every day after that no matter this pain. You know? And why don't you bring it back to what you were saying before about how you don't see it as as you know a curse because it has really fed your creativity. And I find that just so relatable because I know so many people who've got bipolar and they're all such incredibly creative people. Um, and so, yeah, they, they struggle. I think sometimes they, firstly, they struggle to get diagnosed correctly. And then when they are put on the medication, sometimes they feel even worse because they feel like it's hindering their creativity. So one thing I really wanted to ask you was, you know, living with bipolar on a day-to-day -day basis, seeing, you know, the many different ways that it affects your life, how do you positively manage those fluctuations between, you know, some of those really high highs where you're feeling super inspired and creative 
um, and those really low lows? Like how, how do you sort of navigate, keep your creativity without allowing yourself to get pulled off into bursts of, of mania or things like that? Yeah, that, that euphoric natural high that takes you to such heights. And, and here's the thing, like we, we have to recognize that because, yeah. because if you get too manic, it can become very dangerous, very dangerous. You know, doctors have understood now that mania, when not checked for weeks upon end, that doesn't release into a, into a, a depressive low, um, causes akin to brain damage. You see the, the neurons and synapses are, are firing so rapidly. The, the, uh, the ideas are coming so swiftly. that if you don't come down from that high, if you live in the mania, you're, you're hurting your brain in, in almost a permanent sense. Mm. Uh, and this is what happened to me uh, 15 weeks ago. I thought it was really brave of you when you came out and just explained to everyone that you were going back into psychiatric care for your own, you know, health and your own well-being. So, yeah, I'd love to hear a bit about what, what led you to that moment. Well, you know, usually, Jazz, I'm a very, uh, very uh, self-aware human being. Mm. You know, I'm very aware of when I become manic, when I become depressed how low I am, how dangerous it could be. Is it leading to suicidal thoughts? Do I have ideations? Um, and the problem with my last, before this last cycle, which is the eighth cycle, I'd say, um, prior to that, there'd been seven in which I was suicidal in all of them. Mm. Chronically, chronic suicidal thoughts played me. But here in this situation, in the eighth cycle, I'd say, I wasn't suicidal. I had skyrocketed in such a manic high that I was stuck there and I couldn't, wasn't coming down. Um, and I said, I said to my wife after she was made very aware to me that I was in trouble, uh, after my doctors assessed me, you know, over, over zoom call. Um, and I said, you know what, I have to go in right now because if I don't go in and I crack, it's going to be devastating. Um, and if I don't go in and check the mania and get it under wraps and eat to an even keel, I'm going to be further damaging my brain. And I'll tell you guys, um, I, I have not, I've not fully recovered from, from that manic high. It did affect my brain permanently. Um, I have a significant cognitive delay towards the end of most days. I, I remember during that period, I, I would wake up, turn to my wife and, and say, who are you? Why are you in my bed? Hmm. Um, I would, she would show me a picture of my father. I'd say, I don't know that man. Wow. And and now we've brought it back to a, a safe place, but certainly most nights I am unable to sometimes verbalize. I can't articulate myself. For a guy who speaks around the world every day, it was devastating. You know, yeah, yeah. There were times in that manic struggle where I remember I called my friend Jacob Moore of nostigmas.org and, and, and uh, I, I, I couldn't make out a sentence. He didn't understand me and for one point thought it was a crank call. It must have felt devastating, you know, as you're saying, for someone that speaks for a living. Mm. You know, it, it was devastating, you know, to, to go in front of an audience and ask that audience 15 times, where did we do, what did I just say? Where were we in the conversation? You know, um, and now it's gotten much better. I'm back to a place where I can speak of a, a full presentation and, and I'm back to a place mentally where I feel uh, a lot better. But that 
that did affect me and it did, it did leave a permanent mark. Um, and, and, can, you know and can I just ask, and forgive me if I've got this mixed up, but that when you reached that level of mania where you did have to go into care again, was that triggered by you changing your medication or going off your medication or anything like that? Or was there yeah, so, something else? So this is crucial for the audience to understand. Um, I'm a guy who, 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 who religiously takes medication mm. on that routine. I take it every day at the same time every day, no matter the time. And here I was in so much physical pain from, from an issue prior to that I thought was causing, caused by the medication. Um, and we're still working on that, you know, diagnosis. I had secondary burns from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head, bloody blisters throughout my entire body from a medic, from one of my many medications that poisoned my arteries. And, and I had cleared that pain. I had, I, I had uh, cleared the burns on my skin. You know, real secondary burns on the tipping point of Stevens Johnson syndrome. I don't look that up. It's horrifying. Your insides come out of you and then you, and you die. 1% of people survive it. They got them before that happened. So they cleared the burns with a, with a change in my diet and with a certain topical that was ba honey honeycomb based that was completely natural. Yeah. Um, and I get to this point where I'm feeling better. But then the nerve, de the nerve pain comes back. Mm. And so I was in so much physical pain. Now I'm in, bad, now I'm in really bad back pain and my shoulders are in it. But I'm talking about like, you know, I think you've heard me say this, but Feeling like knives and needles are coming from your bones through your skin. Yes. I've had a chronic pain disorder in the past and it wasn't anywhere like that. But I, I do know those, those, what mine felt like was like stinging fire ants in my fingers, sometimes in, like around my head, everywhere. Um, yeah, and I was very thankful that uh, it took me three years, but I did recover from it. Um, but I know that when you are in so much physical pain as well as men like mental pain, like they go hand in hand and it just, yeah, so I can understand if you were going through that, you probably wouldn't have wanted to be on your medication. My judgment was clouded. I took, I went off my meds abruptly, and I didn't tell anybody. And then I skyrocketed into mania. And, and, and you know, Jazz, I, I've got a lot of video content that I'm going to share of this experience down the line and, and the reality of this, this kind of mental and brain pain uh, because I think there's there's something to be learned. You know, when when you when I'm sitting here talking to you in a calm, cool, collected tone, I'm doing well. And I sit down in front of a camera and I tell it that, that I'm doing well now and I, I I'm I'm better now. Here I am in this in this good state of mind. But this is where I was because of the things I did, relations I made, even as a guy who studied bipolar disorder for the last 20 years and knows not to go off meds abruptly. I think it was incredibly courageous when you came out and let everybody know where you were at, what had happened, the fact that you had gone off your medication, because I thought, geez, like that really takes guts. I can imagine in your position, you, you might have felt like, oh, I don't want people to know because I'm supposed to be an advocate for sticking to a routine and sticking to my meds. Like, is that how you felt at the time? You know, I, I've, I've felt for a long time now that we have to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. Me too. The true, and the true and the dark and the, and the painful. We have to share that, you know, in, in this world of social media so people don't think we're superhuman. I'm a human being, and to be a human being is to err, is to err, is to fall off the wagon, is to mess up uh, at a job, is to be a dysfunctional family member. I mean, to be a human being 
you 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 have flaws. Um, I'm no superhuman person. I, I'm 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 just a guy named Kevin who has this disease, has to fight it every day, and I sometimes make mild to moderate to very big mistakes in my. And I think that you know, with here's the thing: dealing with physical pain and brain pain at the same mm-hmm. time is often a very tightrope balance. You can go this way, you can go that way, and then also having these waves of bipolar disorder. Uh, I have got to take extra care in this space for myself. Um, and, and just so you know, Jazz, when I can't travel, I don't. Cancel it. An act of God. Uh, I, I can't go do something when I am so mentally unsound mm. or so mentally unwell that it's impossible. But Jazz, you better believe that I'm going to do everything I can to get to that stage, to be, be at that presentation, to try to help one person in that audience every time I possibly can. And my, my hope is that people who, who uh, book these presentations will understand that. You know, you're a mental health organization or you're a hospital association or you're an event planner, and I have a brain disease. Oftentimes, I lose control of, and, and, that, and, and feel free to blame me if you want to, but it's just not that simple. You know, whether it's my back and I physically can't get on a plane, which has happened, or whether it's my brain, people need to comprehend that, that that's a possibility. And that's okay. You know, I have to take care of me so that when I feel better, I can go do the good work and try to affect that good change, you know? Now, there's something you said before that I wanted to touch on, and you're talking about, obviously, the role that your beautiful wife, Margie, has played in your, you know, um, in your journey and many, many times through your recovery. And, you know, with any mental illness, but particularly, you know, bipolar, I think it's so important to recognize the work that caregivers do and the impact that it, it can have on a loved one or a, a carer who is, you know, just like you were saying, you turned to Margie and was saying, who are you and who's my dad? Um, and, yeah, I was, I was wondering if you could just share a bit about how, how it's impacted Margie over the years and how she cares for herself as well so that she can be there for you. You know, I, I think that I really believe this. Margaret Hines is absolutely the strongest human being I've ever met in my life. She's also the most gifted and the most beautiful. Mm. And the things she's had to deal with because of my brain pain, like she, she has been there for me when I'm in the lowest of my lows, in the darkest corners of my life. And she has helped me get back up like Muhammad Ali, never lay on the mat too long, get back into the ring and get back to the fight. Yeah. Because you two met during one of your psychiatric stays, didn't you? If, you're, if, you're, if, if, you're, if, you're, if your if you're followers want to just go to youtube.com, yeah. Kevin Hines, look up two videos that you will absolutely love. They will be uh, My Undying Love, and of course that's from Margaret, and, yeah. and the second video will be Met My Wife in a Psych Ward. I love that one, yeah. They're well worth the time you spend to watch them because it's a story that is is unlike most. I think uh, it's, it's one of the most beautiful love stories I've ever heard. <laughs> you saved my life on more times than I can count on all of my appendages. You know what I mean? Like, if it wasn't for Margaret, I wouldn't be here 10 times over. Uh, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have gotten better so many times. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't for her, um, I wouldn't be the man I am today. What are some of the things that Margie has done specifically to make sure that she can, you know, pull back into her cup? Well, you know, she she has a lot of friends. 
She has a lot of friends that she talks to. More importantly, most importantly, she has faith. She has faith in me. She has faith in God. And she has faith in her family that take care of her. You know, uh, she can call any one of her 300 relatives uh, ranging from the Philippines to uh, Australia to uh, you know, all over the world. And they're going to be there for her um, in her time of need. And, and she has my dad. You know, she'll reach out to my dad and they'll talk because they've gone through the same thing. Mm. It's just a different time period, you know. And my dad is one man who understands what it's like to live with and care for and be a caregiver to someone like me, someone with the brain disease I have. So uh, in that regard, she's very well protected. She has her personal protectors all around her at any time. And she's ready to handpick which one, you know, she wants to talk to or needs to talk to next, you know. Mm. Um, and that is like her therapy, you know, uh, and, 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 and um, plus, you know, just, just to be honest, sometimes she doesn't need all that. Sometimes she just needs a quiet moment and, um, and some calming music and she just needs some space and that's okay. Every, every, every couple needs that. They need time when they spend it to be, and I'm not saying go be with other people. I'm saying spend it with yourself. We as human beings need to recognize that when there's too many um when there's too many too too much stimulation you need to bring it set back to center do some deep breathing and just be with yourself and be grateful for yourself and your ability to get back to well-being you know yeah. so as much as she takes care of me she takes care of herself mm. and that's that's just so important because i know a lot of people that i know their partners have struggled at one time or another and i think that things are getting better because there's so much more awareness out there now as well about how to care for a loved one and what bipolar is. Like, for example, um, one of uh, uh, there's an amazing man who's in the second volume of Reasons to Live, which is coming out later this year, and he struggled for, hmm, he was in his mid-20s before he even found out that he had bipolar. And so obviously he'd been in relationships before that. He had children. Yeah, his relationships were a mess. He was struggling with like addiction, alcohol, um, suicide. Like he's in his forties now, and he has survived oh, something like seven suicide attempts. And he's just gotten to a place now where he has finally worked out the keys for him for how to healthily manage his bipolar. But yeah, he had just a a shit time for you know four decades trying to work out what was going on with him um and you know he often very publicly says I put my wife through hell like I'm doing so well now and now it's time for me to give back to her but I I still feel bad for everything I put her through and you know he, he struggles sometimes with the guilt but I'm like you know it's time for time for you to to pull back into her cup now and raise her up and he's like yep absolutely gonna do that right. you have to have that balance you know or else exactly. won't work at all Yep. Now, switching topics, um, one last question. There is one thing I would really love to ask you, and it's it's quite interesting because I was having a conversation with someone recently um, about the topic of suicide survivors sharing their stories. So I was speaking to someone from a suicide prevention organization. I was sharing with them about my book, um, and they said, oh, there's there's nothing in your book about like methods of suicide or anything is there and I said we don't go into any graphic detail no and I said but someone will share that 
they they tried to overdose and there's no other details other than that because these are stories you know not of an actual suicide but someone who survived and has found a way through that pain and now wants to give back to others and show them that there's there's hope and healing as well um and this person said to me no 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 you need to get rid of all of that and i said well i've i've taken out anything that gives any graphic sort of visualization i said it's just a word like the person says i you know, I survived trying to overdose. I said, I haven't even mentioned the medication. They said, no, you can't mention that. You can't say that somebody jumped off something. You can't say that they tried to hang themselves. There can't be any mention of anything. And I started to really doubt myself. And I was thinking, man, do I need to like take all of this out? Like, I don't want to censor the voices of these people who have already faced so much stigma and are now trying to tell their stories. But like, is this, is this true? Am I doing more harm than good by somebody saying, I once tried to overdose, but here's all of my journey of, of rising above. And I thought of you. I thought of you and I thought of Dan Price, who you would know. Because yeah. Dan Price is in my first book. Yeah, Pricey. And we both said, what about Kevin? Like, think about his story. What would his story be if he had just left it and said, I once tried to take my life? And now I'm going to just talk to you about suicide prevention. And I wanted to ask you, one, have you ever had somebody tell you that you should leave out the details of the bridge? And two, do you do you believe that it's putting people at risk of suicide by mentioning that you tried to take well, it up? Well, that's number two first. I've had many people come up to me and say that, that, that best practices in suicide prevention are to never mention the word itself yes. alone. Uh, I'm going to name two names that you're going to know very well. Mindframe Media and, and Roses in the Ocean, when we released our film Suicide Ripple Effect, came out against us in full force, shutting down some of our, lobbying to shut down some of our screenings. Today, we had no help seeking behaviors in the film. 300 plus individuals who have seen the film, of the 250,000, nearing now 300,000 people who have seen the film, uh, 300 of them. More than 300 came up to us at screenings and said the film in that moment they watched it saved their life there is absolutely no saying the method and it leading to suicide none this is something that propagandized itself over time by certain organizations both in america and 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 in australia and around the world that believe in safe messaging in a very particular way that has no studied proof behind it. None. You know, there's a big difference between sensationalizing someone's death and making it incredibly graphic and visual and talking about an actual completed suicide. And I believe it's completely different to share stories of hope and healing yes. where the person is very honest and says, This is this is what I this is how I, you know, what how I felt and this is what I tried to do, but without yes. the graphic detail. Yes, here's what we know. We know that graphic detail and leaving the audience in pain yes. is dangerous. Is dangerous. Yes. From the Werther effect and the Papagino effect, we know that leaving someone or a group and audience in the painful struggle and saying nothing about how they found, live, and stay in recovery, that's dangerous. Yes. But talking about your attempt, even in some or detail or further detail, while then following up with and leaving the audience with recovery, and recovery tips, tools, and tricks, and physical resources to take home, that saves lives. Yes. My wife did a 
quantitative and qualitative, pardon me, not my wife, but the Kevin Martin Hines Foundation did a qualitative and quantitative analysis on my story and its ripple effect on people's lives. I had nothing to do with this analysis. I didn't even know what was going on when she did it. She, she had studied, and the group, the, our foundation had studied the presentations and their effect on audiences around the world and through social media, video media. Yeah. And we came to the conclusion that my story is the only lived experience story quantitatively and qualitatively proven to save lives. I'm not counting that. I don't even own that. I believe that I'm a conduit. I don't believe I save lives. I believe I'm a conduit and we're all in this field of conduits to help somebody else choose life. I believe that these individuals hear a story. They find a relatability to it. They are leaving with sticky memories in their brain that is scientifically proven to change someone's alter their ideology. And then they go home, they do the work, they tell the people they need to tell, they get help and they change and save their own lives. Um, but here's the thing. What, what would I be without telling that story? And, and how can I leave that out given that 400 million people have seen the video? And that's just one of them. There are you know, over 400, of them, 400 different videos of my story online. So, so if we're going to go and say that just saying that someone says the method is going to kill somebody or hurt somebody or lead to suicide, that is a blatant lie. And that is propaganda pushed by people with a particular agenda. Mm. And I can tell you this. The, uh, the group, uh, Mindframe Media and, and uh, Rose in the Oceans, put out a press release before they'd even seen the film that it was dangerous. We know they didn't see the film because we sent them a screener that they didn't watch. We can see when people watch it. They lied. So, and, and here's the thing. You're not going to give people the voice and make them voiceless. We survived immeasurable pain, all of the people in that film, Australian American, Americans included. We survived immeasurable pain, and we get to talk about that pain if we've come to a place of finding, living, and staying in recovery. Exactly. And we were, our, our goal is not to harm a soul. Our goal, the goal of every Australian in that film, is to give back to our community, give back to the people we love, and try to help those in pain stay right here. And that's my motto, to be here tomorrow and every single day after that, no matter the pain you're in. And to your question earlier that I didn't answer, I have never suffered a day in my life. And I came to that conclusion when I learned that the term suffering, and Ben Higgs will tell you this, the term suffering of, uh, of, uh, of the foundation, uh, uh, Rise Foundation Australia, Ben Higgs will tell you this, the term suffering has, has and always has been given to us by clinicians. You mm -hmm. go see it for the very first time before you are ever diagnosed. And they say, Kevin, you're suffering from bipolar disorder. And that term over time is ingrained in our minds. I'm suffering. I'm suffering. I'm suffering. Nonsense. I have been in pain, Jazz, since the day I was born in squalor in a crack motel. Mm. But I've never suffered a day in my life. I thrive, Jazz. And I get to talk to amazing, beautiful human beings like you every day and share my message of hope. And that is a gift to me and you. It's our gift. We share it. Yeah. You're a gift to me as much as I am to you. And that's how, that's how every audience to me I ever see. They're a gift to me more than I am to them. Because every story they tell me at the end of my presentation means the world to me. I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, oh, you must hear these a thousand stories every time. It must get, get so annoying. No. Come up to me. Tell me your story. I'll give you my time. And I do love every human being in that kind of pain because yeah. I want them to see. Uh, I completely agree. I was just saying that in an interview the other day, I was talking about my book, Reasons to Live, and I said, so many people come and say to me, oh, 
well, yeah, like I've, I've been through some stuff, but I don't know that anyone would want to hear it. And, you know, I don't know that there's anything that makes my, my story special. And I haven't been through as much pain as, you know, this person. And I always say, I believe that every single one of us has a story. Every single one of us has an opportunity to positively impact somebody's life with our story. And I believe one of the greatest legacies that we can leave behind is to help somebody else, is to use all of the shit and the pain and the darkness that we've been through and transform it into something better, transform it into something light by helping someone else. And I was very lucky to to sort of see that in action. Um, yesterday or two days ago, I got to speak to a group of mental health inpatients, so people that were in pretty dark places. And um, one lady, she she just looked at the front cover of my book and she started crying. She was apologising, saying, I'm so sorry, like I don't usually cry, I don't know why I'm crying. And she said, I just read the words on, on the cover of your book, like reasons to live, just like you say, be here tomorrow, one more day every day. And she was she was just crying and she was like, I, I said, you don't need to apologize. You don't need to apologize for crying. Like I'm, you know, it's, I'm, I'm happy to be here and talking to you. And I said, you're going to be okay. Like just keep, keep going. And I wish you all the best in your journey. And she was, it was just a mess, but it's just the, the number of people that think that their story isn't important. And that's why I wrote my book. And that's why I was, you know, so um, excited to have the chance to talk to you because I really want to include these stories in the second book from people like yourself that like you said you still mat you, you still go through pain every day but you don't see it as suffering and you see life as a gift you've found a way to, to change your mindset um, and I think that's so important for people so that they can see that they have value and they have purpose in this world and even if they don't know what what their plan is for life yet they can at least start to believe one step at a time one day at a time that they have value in this world and that they can give back. So we just uh, could stop with our negative inner critical voice. Mm. We could retrain the negative inner critical voice, which is completely possible. Every time you say something negative about yourself, immediately reverse it into something positive about yourself. I used to self-loathe all the time. I hate you, Kevin. I hate you so much. And I would say, no, Kevin, I love you. Or I'd say, Kevin, you're so stupid. You're so ugly. Your ears are so big. Your nose is so big. No, Kevin, you're beautiful. Uh, Kevin, you're a horrible human being. No, Kevin, you're a good human being. And so whatever the negative thing is, always reverse it immediately and continue to reverse it until you believe it. 21 days makes a habit. 365 days makes it fact. You believe it. It's real. It's yeah. honest. And, and, and you know it. And I think that, um, that it's, it's, it's important for people to recognize in places of power in different mental health organizations that uh, sometimes the things that are uh, great uh, don't need to be studied, and the things that are studied aren't so great. Yeah. So that goes for me included, right? So, so what we need to do is have more empathy for each other's pain. Mm. What we need to do is have more empathy for the rise of important voices. And your book and your second iteration of your book is going to help people and has helped people, and it's going to continue to change, and it's going to augment destinies forever, and that's a beautiful thing. And um, uh, Jazz, Lastly, I want to say I'm thankful for you. Oh, I'm thankful you. that across uh, that ocean you are doing immeasurable work to augment destiny. It's a beautiful thing. You're an amazing human being. And I'm very, very grateful uh, to be able to be shared on this platform on your show. Um, and I, I do hope that people 
um, will will help you help more people. Mm, thank um, you. Yeah, no, totally. And I got to give a shameless plug here. Um, the film Suicide, the Ripple Effect. Yes, it was actually a year ago yesterday that I saw the film for the first time. What were your thoughts about it, personally? Oh, I think I was struggling not to cry. <laughs> um, I loved it, but I loved, I mean, there were so many things I loved. Obviously, the production of it was incredible. Cinematically, it was just so um, moving and so visual. And then to see so many people from around the world, including Australia, I think that's what I really loved. Like, I saw it went oh, wow, there's Pricey and there's, you know, this person and this person that I know. Um, and to see you talking to so many people around the world and getting them to share their stories, get doing interviews with, like, family and friends of yours and talking in depth about the way that your attempted suicide impacted them. And I think that was probably the number one thing that I took away from it. I said, I love that this guy is brave enough to go there and talk about the fact that suicide does have a ripple effect. Because I know, you know, we never want to make, we don't want to victim blame somebody for, for being, making a, a choice out of that level of pain. But I think we've gotten to a place in society sometimes where people are too afraid to speak about what it's like to be a bereaved loved one. We don't want to admit that those who are left behind are often left in incredible pain because they feel like that's blaming the person for making that choice. You don't want to blame them. but. I, I love the fact that your film really shows the impact on these family members and loved ones left behind and you talk you talk about that ripple effect and I think that is so important because I have not seen I've not seen any other film or documentary do that so. you know we, we wanted to make sure that both sides all, all sides of this yeah. of this suicide problem that scours across the globe were covered. And, and, you know, every speech I do, I open it with a moment of silence for all of those that we have lost to suicide. Most people don't know until they hear me speak that I've lost eight people I love. Eight, yeah. including my biological. Yes, I was going to say, mom was and, 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 and then I attempted, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a survivor both ways, multiple times, both ways. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if we could just open our minds, open our eyes, we would see everyone and everything that surrounds us and what's going on with them internally that's leading them to pain. And if we can reach our hand out to all of those people, one person at a time, whether it's advocacy in person or in a speech or through media or whether it's physically with your friends or your family. Uh, if we can have, as Joe Williams calls it, um, the conversation at the dinner table. Yeah. Conversation at the dinner table with family that says before they ever become suicidal, when they're 13, 14, uh, hey, you know, mental health is a real thing. So you're yeah. stunned, uh, if you need our help, we're here for you and we love you. Mm -hmm. You know, you know um, if we can say to the people we love who are going through um, gender identity issues or sexual identity issues, um, we, we are here for you and we love you. We don't judge you. Instead of having what some Americans are doing right now, which is conversion therapy, which is ridiculous. Yeah, it's awful. Uh, someone who, who knows who they are and is something they're not is, in my mind, criminal. Uh, oh, it's crazy that we still have that today. It's ridiculous that that still exists and that, and that laws back it up. It's terrifying in some states. Mm -hmm. in America. But what I'm saying is acceptance of all, empathy for all, no matter their behavior toward you. 
that's when you become a truly beautiful human being. My mom taught me that from day one. Debbie Hines and Pat Hines adopted me and made me their son. And then my mom taught me from day one, never to judge anyone by their religious affiliation or none, political affiliation or none, um, ethnic makeup or background, uh, their gender, their sexual identity, or anything else but their character. If we all did that as human beings, this would be a much better world. Oh, for sure. And I think that's a beautiful place to, to end our chat today and wrap up our, our talk. So I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for making time today. Thank you for just being, yeah, so, so, so generous with your time. And thank you for everything that you do around the world. Sorry, I'm struggling with losing my voice at the moment, <laughs> trying to talk. But um, yeah, thank you for all that you do. And I'm really excited that, um, yeah, Suicide the Ripple Effects, get it, we're going to be able to buy it really soon because I know lots of people that couldn't make it to the screening. So that is that is amazing. And I'll be purchasing that one as soon as it comes out. And, um, yeah, I can't wait to read your message as well in the, in the second copy of Reasons to Live. So thank you again so much. We are a team. All this, this whole suicide prevention world, even the ones that disagree with us, we're a team. We just need to yep. work better together, stop competing with each other, yeah. start collaborating, cooperating, and that's when we'll actually save a lot of lives.